Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Why are some countries prosperous and free, and others are poor and unfree? There's no simple answer to this question. Healthy and strong institutions in both government and civil society are important for securing liberty. That's the argument made by today's guest, James Robinson. James is the Richard L. Pearson Professor of Global Conflict Studies and University Professor at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. He and Darren Esamolu are the co-authors of 2012's Why Nations Fail and their 2019 follow-up, The Narrow Corridor, State, Societies, and the Fate of Liberty. James, welcome to the podcast. Very happy to be here. Now, the, the narrow corridor of the book's title is, a, and if I'm hope I'm describing it right, it's a pathway between a tyrannical, strong state society and sort of an anarchic, weak state society. And it's, it's both kind of a, a process and a struggle. And as you and uh, Daron write, uh, it's a civilization sort of travels through this corridor uh, when both the state and society increasing capacity, which then allows each to get more powerful and provide benefits while keeping the other in check. So it's kind of the struggle. And I guess the result is what we have now in many countries are liberal democratic democracies. So I guess my one, uh, correct me if I got that right. And two, or if I got it wrong and two, is this corridor getting narrower or harder to travel or even collapsing? Because it seems like there's some trouble with the corridor. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, I think, you know, you said that exactly right. I think, I think the big picture in, you know, over the last 50 or 100 years is that the corridor is getting wider. You know, I think that we point to many things about the modern world, which make it easier to get into the corridor if you're Yemen or, you know, or someplace outside the corridor. But I, but I do think, you know, we also emphasize a lot that, you know, major shocks and crises in history certainly uh, pose challenges to remaining in the corridor. Yes, and, the, and they, they can intensify mechanisms which keep you out of the corridor. Because it seems to me there's been an assumption that, that sort of, it went, I'll, I'll call it sort of the, the liberal democratic capitalist corridor, that, that, there's, that there has sort of this inexorable momentum that you're always going forward and there'll always be more participants and all going towards some even you know even even brighter more prosperous freer uh, future and you said that you know that may well describe sort of the thrust of history over the past 50 to 100 years but just as I was mentioning it seems of late that it has not been working as well and people are doubting whether they whether being that corridor brings the benefits that have been promised yeah, I, you know, I think, I think, you know, you're right that the book is, you know, the book is really about these long run dynamics and trying to explain, you know, these historical divergences between the institutions of different parts of the world. And, you know, why is it that Western Europe and North America look so different from China, you know, or sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America? Uh, but, you know, and, and, but we also, you know, and, and I think that that sort of very long run 
dynamics are, are very much the focus. But we also try to point out that you know there's many forces that can throw you out of the corridor and that pose challenges. And you know what I find interesting as a social science scientist, if you look at European history, you know that's that's definitely there. But then once you're in the corridor, you know there is this ability to kind of reconstruct society in the corridor. The problem is, you know, the, the, the episodes where you're outside the corridor can have enormous consequences for human welfare. And, and I, you know, I do think that a lot of challenges we're seeing today are forces that, you know, you see in the past as well, which have knocked societies out of the corridor. Yes, I think that's right. So, so what you mentioned Europe, is that, when, is that when it first emerged? And if so, why? Well, I think... You know, our, our, our way of thinking about this is that, you know, to get into the corridor, you have to have this balance, as you were saying. And that is something very difficult to attain. You know, maybe it can be organized, you know, in some kind of constitutional moment. Or, But I think that the, 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 the societies we look at historically, you know, it's actually a, a really fortuitous set of events. You know, in the, in the case of Western Europe, this, you know, we really point to this period at the collapse of the Western Roman Empire where you get this merger of late Roman state institutions with this very participatory nature of Germanic tribes. And this comes together in a kind of state which is functional, but, but, but accountable. I mean, it doesn't look like a modern democracy. And, and, and you know, some, what we would call liberal democracy, in some sense, is the fruits of this very long historical evolution. It's not something that you'd notice in 500 AD. But that initial condition was never never emerged in China, for example. You've got a very different history where the state was able to create this enormous dominance and despotism over society. And once that happens, it's very difficult to get out of that situation. Whereas in Africa, the opposite happens. You know, it's really power is in society and social institutions, and it becomes impossible to create states out of those those out of that those structures. I mean, I, I think we would like to believe that if somehow we can, you know, create just the right institutions, that that's enough. That you know, you just need the you, you just need you know the right kind of legislature and judicial system, and that will sort of drag a state into inside that narrow corridor. But it sounds like you know the culture and history are equally important. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's much too simplistic to think like that because. You know, I don't think any of us probably really, none of us really think like that. We all understand, you know, like de Tocqueville understood that in the US, for example, yes, we have these particular institutions, checks and balances, separation of powers, whatever, but they're sitting in a particular society, you know, in a particular context of social norms. And those norms, you know, and the way society operates is very important for underpinning those institutions and for making them work, work in the way that they do. But in many other parts of the world, that kind of underlying social structure is just not there. You know, the norms are not there. The forms of collective action and cooperation are not there. So in the United States, is it the Constitution? Is it that civil society uh, you mentioned or, or, or really both? Well, I think I think it's both. I mean, I think that I, w- I would say, you know, the Constitution played an important role, but but it wasn't a coincidence that, you know, the US was able to write, you know, that constitution and agree. I mean, not everybody agreed, uh, but but the majority of people agreed on 
those rules, you know, that came out of a particular context and a particular evolution of a, of a, of a distinct type of society. So I think, I think it's both things. It's a sort of interaction. I'm not saying the constitution didn't have an important role to play, uh, but it's not a coincidence that, you know, that Bolivar's constitution you know, for Venezuela look very different from the U.S. constitution. How, how would you evaluate sort of the state, the sort of the, uh, the state of that struggle between sort of between society and government, public and the private? Is that, is, has, how has that sort of balance changed? And is, and is the balance currently sort of in an optimal place for the United States? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting, it's an interesting question. I think, you know, one of the things that we would be concerned about is, you know, the impact of globalization has created enormous rise in inequality in the last 30 years. And, and I think also technology, technology has massively increased the ability of the government to monitor people and control society and process information. And that, that can be used for good, but it can also be used for bad. You know, just look at China, uh, what's happening in China with this social credit system. And so that, that is a, you know, and I, you know, we tend to think that people running the state, you know, uh, give, give them more information and ability to control people. That's what they're going to do. So society has to be very vigilant at a moment like this, where you have an explosion of technological capacity to collect information and monitor people. That, to me, is a very dangerous moment. When we look at how sort of the United States is responding to this pandemic, it's, it's, it seems like we it seems like we need more state ability. Like the state either isn't strong enough or it isn't competent enough. I mean, that's I mean, that's sort of why I asked the previous question. It seems like perhaps I mean it'd be easier to draw the conclusion that uh, that that the balance that the balance is wrong. That either maybe we're in the try to stick with a metaphor we're in the wrong place in the corridor or, or i don't know i'm not sure about that actually you know i think democracy you know is always a mess it's it's much more messy than 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 autocratic political systems you know and people ignore evidence and you know they ignore good advice and and there's a lag and but i you know i see what i see now at the moment is there's just enormous energy and creativity from like all over the society trying to kind of combat this. You have this decentralized system, so there's lots of scope for innovation at the state level in policies and strategies. And I, you know, I, I, you know, I think it's always a lag, you know, and that's just part of the messy thing that democracy is and different people have different interests and, you know, and, but, but I, you know, I don't see that as necessitating. I think it's a very dangerous moment because many people think you know, in the way that you just articulated, mm -hmm. oh gosh, you know, we, we need much more control. <laughs> but look, but I, look at look at Singapore. <laughs> I mean, how how many stories have pointed have just like just uh, you know they're just you know jealous of how you know Sing, you know Singapore very organized. Maybe maybe China's too much, but Singapore Singapore seems like a nice balance to many people of of, of state power. Uh, when it clearly it's 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 a far more it's as a more powerful intrusive state than we have in the United States. Yeah, but you know, I you know, I I think you know, I think first I have two comments on that. First, you know, Singapore is a is a creation of a very specific historical uh, experience. You know, it's a city state on an island. You know, it was a very developed place when it became independent. Uh, there's a kind of ability to organize a city like that in a way that is just you know irrelevant for 
something like the United States. So the history is very different. And there's also trade-offs, you know, you, you know, chewing gum is, a, you know, you, you know, there's just a very draconian, it's much less draconian than it used to be in Singapore. But I don't think most people in the United States want to live in a place like that. You know, they want much more freedom, you know, in that, in that kind, of, kind of common sense of the word. And, and, you know, maybe sometimes there are trade-offs, you know, and, and, and a moment like this, maybe there is a trade-off and something like Singapore is able to deal faster with a problem like this. But I think one of the points about our book is that, you know, in the long run, really, there's no, you know, there's no trade-off in normal circumstances. But even now you see China repressing, you know, scientific research about the causes of the virus and the nature of the virus. And I think that's the big, that's the big picture, you know. So, so if you want innovation to flourish, you want creativity to flourish, you want liberty to flourish, you can't do that with this, this type of authoritarian system. You know, I think Singapore, it's an interesting case you know but it's not representative of the world at, at all you know but you but you like the balance struck uh in sweden which you think it sounds like you think they uh where they have a, a very they have a very vibrant sort of society but also a very uh a strong and, a, and an efficient state that they that they seem to be doing maybe both better than we are in the united states I, you know, I think, I think, again, there's trade-offs. I, you know, I'm a big admirer of Scandinavia. I think, you know, Scandinavian societies have managed to create uh, very high levels of welfare for the people, social insurance, you know, without sacrificing prosperity. But again, you know, the U.S. is very, very different. You know, it's very difficult, very different. It's very difficult to build the type of political coalitions you know, that created social democracy in Sweden in the 1930s. In the United States, it's just so much bigger and more heterogeneous. People have different ideas and different preferences. And, you know, and that's just much more difficult to, to pull together into some policy the way the Swedes did. So I think, you know, things that... Might... I, don't, I, don't hear those ca- I don't hear those caveats much when people, you know, the traditionally more on the left have pointed to Sweden. But now, you know, on... Or Scandinavia, or you know, Finland, Finland, Norway, and some people on the right are pointing to it. And that, it seems as almost as if they believe we can look at a country like that, you know, very different, very different history, culture, and we can sort of cut and paste policies and, uh, uh, and insert them in the United States. That that just seems too simplistic. Yeah, I find that very unrealistic. I mean, I think you know, one can always learn from differences and different experiences and the impact of different policies. But I, you know, I think that has to be adapted to. That has to be adapted to the reality of, of U.S. society. I thought China was in the kind of in the corridor, maybe in the back of the corridor. Now it seems like they're not in the corridor at all. Yeah, I think I mean, I think opinions differ on this. You know, the, when President Bush Jr. Uh, was around, there was a lot of, you know, he kind of strongly believed that economic development in China was going to lead to sort of opening of the political system and democratization and there was this middle class that was appearing and you know so you know in terms of our concepts you'd say yes china was was moving towards the corridor but I, that's very different from our view i mean i think our view which we which we we talk about in a lot of detail in the book is that actually this modernization mechanism that people pointed to just does not operate. It doesn't operate generally, and it certainly doesn't operate in China. If you look at China today, and what we point out there is that there's so many continuities in Chinese history in the relationship between the state and the society and the very despotic nature of political authority. And 
that to us is you know the big picture. So I I, I don't think I, I agree with you that China's moving further away from the corridor since President Xi came in, and you know and they're using these new technologies to 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 kind of you know create this kind of vice like grip on on society. You know, but sort of the message from China is that we've we figured out a different way to ha- to have a long term sustainable prosperous society. America does it one way, we, but we, we have figured out a different way and it, it involves uh, very <laughs> involves uh, maybe not much uh, political dissent, uh, but involves a very smart state, a much smarter state than the Soviet Union ever had. It has some market mechanisms uh, that, you, that accepts outside investment and, and yet yeah, it can still have a very strong authoritarian state and it works. You may not like it, but it, but it can create a prosperous society. Are you think, confident in that, that, that that's a long-term, uh, you know, that, that's a long-term sustainable development? No, I don't think that's true at all, actually. I think you only have to look at Chinese history to see that that's not true. You know, 40 years, there's many societies in world history that have experienced 40 years of sustained prosperity. You know, Argentina, before the First World War, did even better than 40 years. You know, look what happened after that. I would say, you know, China has some advantages. There's a deep history in China, you know, going back to Confucius and even before the first imperial state of meritocracy of, you know, promote the worthy and talented, Confucius said. But I think I think this, um, you know, we know that unchecked political power always ends up getting, you know, used at the expense of society and prosperity. And, you know, I think... The way that's going to happen in China, you know, that's difficult to predict, but I'm sure it's going to happen. It's always happened in Chinese history, you know, and any attempt, you know, the attempts of Deng Xiaoping to change political institutions to create these term limits, for example, that's been demolished uh, now. And, you know, I think this only goes one way and it does not. And that's not the path of sustained prosperity, quite the opposite. Yeah, so China, it doesn't look like China's entering that corridor. We had, all, we had hopes for Russia also not entering that corridor. What countries have been able to do it over the past you know, generation or so uh, where they've moved from uh, authoritarian uh, uh, to being in the corridor? Because even, even some that did, you know, in, in Eastern Europe, it seems like they're backsliding. What are the, what are the real success stories here uh, of late? Yeah, I think I think the real success stories over the last 50 or 60 years are, you know, the big obvious ones are South Korea and Taiwan. Uh, You know, there's smaller success stories, smaller places that nobody talks about, like Mauritius and Barbados. And, uh, you know, and then going further back, you could say there's, um, you know, there's Japan. And uh, so so, so I would say South Korea and Taiwan are very interesting examples you know especially because they're in this sort of chinese cultural sphere in some sense so they're even more interesting for us in terms of thinking about the future of that part of the world if you think that america has not reached sort of the idea an ideal position and there's more progress that can be made moving forward through that corridor how do we do it you know i don't think no society is ideal (laughs) Uh, not the US, not Sweden, not anywhere. You know, there's always problems to address and challenges and things that could be done better. And I think you know, we're all aware of that. You know, speaking as someone who lives in Hyde Park, just near the South Side in Chicago, I think, you know, I am very much aware that there's all sorts of problems in this society that need to be addressed, you know. So, so how, you know, how, how, how do we do that? You know, well, I think, you know, the state, yeah, the state does need to develop more 
capacity, you know, to do things. Uh, but it needs to do that in a way that people can control. You know, it needs to, that we need to find ways of deepening accountability. And, you know, so here's an example, thinking of Illinois, gerrymandering in, in, in the US House of Representatives. There's this absolutely shocking uh, institution <laughs> called gerrymandering everywhere, which is used to reduce accountability and representation. How about changing that as a way of trying to improve the way democracy works in the in the US? Well, I think there's many examples like that that we could use to make institutions work uh, better. But it, it's a slow progress. You know, I, I tend to compare the I tend to compare the US. You know, when I think to Latin American countries, and I think you know. 200 years ago, these societies had very complicated problems to solve in terms of governing territory, creating identities and functioning institutions. And the US did a heck of a better job than Colombia or Mexico or Argentina or Brazil. Uh, comparatively, it's an enormous success and it's unleashed all of this dynamism, you know, intellectual, technological, cultural. Uh, but yeah, there's lots of problems to solve. And, uh, and finally, one concern I have, and is, is during this pandemic, again, we, we mentioned earlier about, you know, some people saying, boy, we just need a much stronger state. Other people are saying, you know, we need to have a more closed society. We should manufacture, make everything in the United States. You know, we should, you know, whatever walls we have need to be bigger. They need to be higher. You know, we, we shouldn't let immigrants in. And uh, I, I, so I'm sort of, I am sort of worried that we're going to start walking backwards through yeah that corridor how how, uh, how, how my my pessimism am i just off track here or no no i think you're exactly right that's a terrible idea you know like this country's been built by you know i always used to say you know when people ask me you know what's the fundamental advantage that the united states has over china somebody asked me that once and i said this ability to suck talent and ideas and people and creativity from all over the world. The US is built on that, you know? Whereas most countries are so nationalistic and xenophobic, they just can't deal with foreigners, you know? And, and so if the US throws that edge away, it's a, it's a disaster, you know? And every economist knows the enormous benefits from trade and specialization. And so I, you know, I think that's the wrong reaction. Yeah, we have to think about these public health challenges and think about creating global responses and institutions. And, and you know, now, we're, now we, we, we didn't think this could happen and now we know it can, so let's prepare for that. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of what made this country what it is. My guest today has been James Robinson. James, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure.